Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 9. We'll begin reading in verse 10 and read through verse 15. Ezra chapter 9, verses 10 through 15. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, and none can stand before you because of this. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to the reading and to the hearing of your word today. Let us hear the message that your Spirit has for us. And Father, let us be doers of the Word, not hearers only. I pray that the words that are spoken would be only the words that You would bless in our hearts. Hide the preacher behind the message. And forgive me, my weakness, as I stand and deliver the awesome message of your gospel from this desk. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for His sake. Amen. We come this morning to consider the 13th verse of this prayer of Ezra. And for any who may not recall the circumstances under which this prayer is offered to God, it's a prayer confessing the sin of God's people who have intermarried with the idolaters of the land in defiance of God's commandment. And as as we've read this morning, Ezra has explored the depth of this sin in the verses leading up to our text for this morning. Now, I'll confess that verse 13 is only half of a sentence. Or as my English teachers might say, it's a sentence fragment, if you take it just by itself. But we will, if the Lord's willing, look at verse 14, the end of that sentence, next Lord's Day. But today I want to focus on this dependent clause that is verse 13, this fragment of the sentence, because it is bursting with important doctrines and ideas that'll take us all our time together today to begin to examine. 
Because this is where Ezra begins to bring all the history, all the law, and all the conduct of the people into a single moment of decision. This is where in this prayer he begins to preach the gospel. You may recall last week that I asserted that verse 12 describes very accurately the work of evangelism. And in a very similar way, verse 13 is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ almost five centuries before the manger in Bethlehem. Everything in this verse points directly to what the New Testament calls the good news, the gospel of God. And it is in that light I'd like to take a look at this passage today. Because we, even as believers who may have walked with Christ for decades, need to be reminded of the gospel regularly. And as introduction, I would submit to you four reasons that we need to be often reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first is, if we are not often reminded, we can become callous to the gospel. That was, after all, Israel's great sin, wasn't it? They comforted themselves in their position as God's people without glorifying God as holy. They were like a poor orphan beggar, and we might ourselves become that, who had been adopted into a mansion of wealth but grow accustomed to the privileges and forget that we are only saved through the grace of God. We might think that after God has loved us, that we have in some way merited God's mercy and free grace. Some people, even Christians, make this mistake. They may freely confess that it is all of grace and none of merit that brings you to God in the beginning. But then as they live, they have made offerings, they have made sacrifices, they have made service to God. And they begin to believe these things have merit in and of themselves. And they begin to think that all their resources and all their effort earned them something in the church. Power or prestige, or recognition, or the like. Yet Jesus tells us that even if we obey Him perfectly, if we accomplish everything He sets for us to do, we have gained no merit at all. Luke 17.10, He tells a parable and he, He tells us this, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done... What was our duty? Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13.3, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. All our efforts are not meritorious in salvation. And so we must not grow callous to the gospel. And that brings me to the second reason that we need to be constantly reminded of the gospel, and that is we can become unloving toward people if we are not. 
The farther we get from our old life, the more tempted we are to pass judgment on those who are not in Christ. Or perhaps even worse, to pass judgment on others who are in Christ but who do not have the same sensitivities as we do. The same secondary theology. I'm not talking here about those who don't believe in the basic teaching of Scripture as outlined as the, in the creed that we speak each week. But the secondary things in our theology, even those that we hold quite dear. The same understanding of God and His law. We all grow in our knowledge and obedience. So we should always consider a weaker brother or sister as one to be prayed for and supported, instructed, come alongside. When we're faced with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are reminded once again of our hopeless state prior to the salvation that God has given. And through the grace of God, when we are reminded of our true state in Christ, we will have compassion, even love for those who are without Christ and even a zeal to see them converted to Christ. But how can I be zealous for the lost if I forget the price paid to free me from the realm of sin and death? At best, if I preach the gospel from that state, I'm merely reciting words. There's no power of the Holy Spirit there because the power of the Holy Spirit is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third reason we need to constantly be aware of the gospel is that we can become comfortable in our position or in our understanding. One of the greatest dangers to an older believer is one of the greatest dangers that we can face is to believe themselves an authority. To believe that through years of study or through personal ability, they have all the answers. And each time a faithful servant is used by God to help someone, the temptation is there to think of yourself as someone who has a handle of the knowledge of Scripture. And the temptation continues to leave the study of the Word behind because you believe you understand it. But the gospel allows none of that pride of life, that boasting inside our heart. The gospel reminds us that we, away from Christ, are just as prone to sin and ruin and destruction. And it reminds us that we are yet fallible, even when we speak with some authority. The final reason we need to be constantly reminded of the gospel is we can become lazy in our sanctification. Have you reached a point in your Christian life where you have stopped looking for sin to put away? Have you reached a point in your life where you think, well, I'm doing pretty well in Christ. I think I've got it all together now. Christians struggle with this willful blindness and slothfulness all the time. We suppress a particularly difficult sin and we feel like there's nothing more to do. We feel like we have climbed the highest mountain in our life. Like someone who puts in a way an addiction, be it drugs or alcohol or pornography or anything else that would entrap us. And once that is done, 
They don't seek deeper, subtler sins to work against. Or some Christians look at others and see the relative cleanness of their own lives. If we allow ourselves to do this, we cease, perhaps for a long time, working toward our own holiness and sanctification. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says this, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. But when we are confronted anew by the gospel, it gives us an opportunity to renew our efforts to be completely conformed to Jesus. Not just on the surface, not just on what people see, not even on those things which have so easily entangled us, but thoroughly, completely, in all things, bringing every part of our life into subjection to Jesus Christ. But the tragedy is so many people cease trying to grow in knowledge or obedience because they think, I've done enough. But the grace gifted to us through Jesus Christ calls us woos us to a greater love, to a greater obedience, and to a greater imitation of Jesus Christ. It is the work of a lifetime, not the work of a season. With these ideas in mind as introduction, let us now look at the gospel as we find it in this 13th verse of Ezra 9. He says, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt. Let me begin in looking at this phrase. And I'll tell you this up front. Ezra is not exaggerating. He's not going to God and saying, oh God, we did some bad stuff. He's not saying that in any way that is not entirely authentic. He is not using hyperbole. He's not overstating the issue. He is confessing the great sin of Israel, the great sin of the Jews around him, and he is not minimizing it at all. Look at the words he uses. He calls them evil deeds. He calls them great guilt. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about what it means to confess sins. And I suppose the first thing that happens when we become cognizant of a particular sin in our lives is that we realize it is truly bad. I almost said in here, we realize how bad it is. But I'm not sure that's the first thing we think of. Because for many, and I I may be just confessing myself here in front of you today, the knowledge of sin sometimes begins quite small. Perhaps a lingering doubt or a feeling in the pit of our stomach that we did something wrong, but we may not even be able to put our finger on it. Has that ever happened to you? You have a conversation or an encounter with someone, and when you walk away, you have this feeling that you did something wrong, something sinful, but you can't quite figure out what. Perhaps a fleeting thought passes through your mind and you hold on to it. 
and you think, there's something wrong in that, but I don't know what. Dear friend, listen to that impulse and let it drive you to the Scriptures. Perhaps you will discover that you spoke with pride or you gave vent to the flesh and fell into gossip or you spoke harshly without speaking in love or that you spoke tickling someone's ear rather than telling them the truth in love. Because as we study the Scriptures and take inside us more of God's Word, we have a greater sensitivity to the true guilt of sin. And that is the first step of the Gospel. To know this for sure. There is no sin, no matter how small or unintentional, that God is okay with. He doesn't look at any sin in your life and say, well, that's okay. I just made him that way. We use that as an excuse. We hear it as an excuse all the time. That's the way God made me. But God never excuses our sin. God's love for you has nothing to do with accepting your sin. He hates it and will punish even the smallest sin in his wrath. So when Ezra classifies intermarrying with the idolaters of the land as evil deeds and great guilt, he means exactly that. And God means exactly that. He had commanded them specifically not to mix with the idolaters. He said, let him come to me, follow Yahweh, worship him only, and then they're acceptable. We talked about that last week. But you might be saying to yourself, this doesn't sound much like good news. But then, let's look at the next thing that Ezra says. He says, you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Let's think about that a second. For the sins of God's people, the kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians and carried off into exile. And for those same sins, the kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonian Empire and carried off into exile. Now these were, by the way, the very punishment that God had warned the people about when He told them not to mingle with idolatry. But that is a severe price to pay. It would be a very good question to ask, what if God passed judgment on our nation in the same way, for the same reasons? But that is a sermon for another day. Ezra says here that God has punished them less than their iniquities deserved. How could he say that? I'll tell you how he can say that. Because it's true. God kept them even through the captivity, keeping a faithful faithful people 
for Himself. The entire book of Ezra is about God's faithfulness in keeping His people in the midst of the penalty for their sins. It is the testimony of the psalmist when he says, He has not dealt with us according to our, according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. You can find that in Psalm 103, verse 10. And so if being carried off into captivity, being carried off into slavery, was less than their iniquities deserved, what did their iniquities deserve? And that is the same thing yours do. Death and eternal destruction. Romans 6, 23a, we read it this morning. The wages of sin is death. He's not talking here simply about a physical death, that the body shall perish because of sin. That's certainly a part of it. But the death he is talking about here is an eternal, everlasting separation from the goodness and the mercy of God with nothing standing between the sinner and God's unveiled, burning wrath. A state in which all the tears and all the torments in eternity can never atone for the sinner. But as we read this morning, and some of you are recalling the rest of that verse, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Christ. Jesus, our Lord. It's critical you understand that. Because what Ezra saw in part, when he said, you have not punished us according to what our iniquities deserved, we see in full. We have been not only forgiven of our sins, we have been cleansed of our sins. We have been freed from our sins in Christ Jesus. God hasn't changed His opinion of sin. God has not changed His wrath toward it. The gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ is offered because Jesus took upon Himself the entire wrath of God toward the sin of His people so that they could be declared justified so that the penalty of their sin could be paid in full on their behalf. I like the way one of the original preachers of the Reformation, Theodore Beza, described this transaction. I'll paraphrase it. He spoke in German, I think. Maybe French. God does not save by a bare act of sovereignty, meaning that He merely declares people just and overlooks their sin. He brings His sovereign righteousness and His sovereign mercy together in Christ. He did this because in order to save those whom God had destined for salvation, the Savior had to be God to bear and exhaust the wrath of God. And he had to be still a true son of Adam to stand as a surety for fallen men.
I love that. Why is it... Why must you believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man? Because He could not have brought us to God except He be so. Jesus, the eternal Son, exhausted a wrath that we could never stand to pay a debt that we could never pay, to bring us a salvation we could never earn, and to give us a life we can never lose. Romans 3, 24-26 describes this very thing in this way. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What He is saying there is that God put up with sin in anticipation of the day that Jesus Christ would remove it. When He says He passed over the sins previously committed, it meant He put up with them because of the promise of the day that Jesus Christ would pay for the sins of His people. The Bible recognizes no salvation Old Testament or new, except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Abraham was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Noah was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. David was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can call any other name of the faithful. And their only hope, their only salvation is the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice that word propitiation. Because the word has a very specific meaning. We don't use it often today. But it means a sacrifice to atone for divine wrath. But we might get the misunderstanding if we read that. We might think that here is God, the wrathful Father. And here is Jesus Christ, the gracious and merciful Son. And I won't get into the full doctrine of the Trinity today. That would take quite a while. But we should always keep in mind that our God Yahweh is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's one of those irreducible articles of faith because no analogy, no matter how clever, can explain the nature of God. Knowing that, it would be completely wrong to make the Father and the Son adversarial in the work of salvation. Jesus wasn't opposing the Father. The Father wasn't opposing the Son. 
Look at this Romans passage again. It talks about the Father's grace. It talks about the Father's display of the Son. It talks about the Father's righteousness and justice that is satisfied. And the Father who is also the justifier of those who believe. You could also just look at John 3.16 or simply recall it in your head right now. God, meaning the Father, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We are called into God's kingdom. We can address God as Father, as Abba, as Daddy, because of the work of His only begotten Son. He wasn't reluctant in salvation. He was instrumental in it. God as all three. So never make the mistake of believing that God has acted in any way toward His people except in His love and in His mercy. He has chastised and will continue to do so. But all with the restraint of an all-knowing, all-loving Father. Finally, the last phrase in our passage today, he says, have given us such a remnant as this. This part in salvation... And we'll continue with it. It kind of links what we're talking about this week to what I plan to talk about next week. Is that God in dealing with us has called us to Himself. Not generally, but specifically, particularly. Every name on the lists of Ezra and Nehemiah, every name in the Lamb's book of life is written by God. So how glorious is it That while we were in rebellion to God, He loved us so much that He gave His Son as a ransom for us. We who thought we were belligerents, God saw the truth. He saw we were truly captives to sin. And while this life still lasts, God calls you to remain active, repent, and believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your ways to God's ways. Leave behind your sin and in favor of His Son. Because the great gospel of Jesus Christ does not end with His sacrifice. He was raised by God never to die again. He ascended into heaven to be forever with God, constantly looking for the good of His people. And that is what we talk about in the remnant today. Those who have been called and who follow our Lord Jesus Christ at all costs. And this gospel of Jesus Christ culminates with our own glorification with Him at the end of the age where we will dwell with Him forever without sin, without 
temptation. We are the remnant. We are those He has called out. We are those He has tasked with taking His name, His word, and His glory into this fallen world. When we read our Old Testament reading today, did you notice how many times we saw the word tell? We saw the word ascribe. We saw the word proclaim. That is our mission in this world. To proclaim the gospel of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a huge task. And we are so small. But God, You've given us Your Spirit so that when we are weak, we have Your strength. When we are in need, we have Your supply. And God, I pray that as we go from this place, Your praise would be constantly on our lips. Our hope in You constantly on our hearts because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished. For it is in His name, our great Savior, we pray. Amen.